Welcome to the Wander Learn Podcast. I'm your host, Francis Tapon. In this episode, I interview Dan Copeland, and we talk about how he got started with drones and filmmaking. When do you use a helicopter, and when should you use a drone? When you have a camera on your phone, should you film vertical, or should you film horizontal? What about image stabilization versus a gimbal? How about digital zoom versus optical zoom? Are all 4K cameras equal? Is 4K just 4K? We get into all these questions and more. This episode is sponsored by my patrons at patreon.com as well as the advertisers that you'll hear in the middle of the podcast. And don't forget to listen to the very end because we'll get into the question of the week which Dan asked me and it is what are NFTs and why are they valuable? And now let's dive in and hear Dan answering my question of how he got into the filmmaking business to begin with bought myself a camera started shooting stuff for free to build up a you know to build up a reel then that led to shooting stuff for really cheap and gradually built it up and um left the city moved to la and now steven spielberg calls you all the time only because i owe him money (laughs) he won't let me on his set (laughs) okay but yes you have made a career out of this now when was the first time you flew a drone the first what time year? I flew a drone was 2012, and that was before FAA regulations. Prior to that, there were niche groups, niche companies that would put cameras on mini helicopters. When there were mini helicopters, you're saying that they were unmanned, unmanned helicopters, helicopters or manned? Yeah, yeah. Got exactly. it. Okay, got it. And I got a lot of work early on before FAA regu- regulations kicked in, and then uh, you know things slowed down quite a bit as people were figuring out what was happening with the industry and eventually uh, came back to an upswing and, and, and that's where we are today. Drones just shoot such incredible footage. They can do things that a helicopter simply can't do. Fly underneath a tiny little bridge, uh, go between trees, that kind of stuff. And so I'm wondering, like at this point, does anybody ever need to use a helicopter to film something? Because is what cases would a helicopter still be needed to film an overhead shot? First of all, when you're flying a drone, by regulation, it's supposed to remain within your visual line of sight. Those things get really small and hard to see in just 800, 1,000 feet away. One advantage of a helicopter is that, I mean, you can fly it miles and it's no problem. Another advantage is that they can fly over buildings and obviously with FAA authorization, uh, fly over traffic and and they have airport access and all that sort of stuff uh, that can be hard to get with a drone. Oh, really? You can't fly a drone over over a freeway or over traffic? You cannot do that. But I'm sure people do it all the time, I'm sure. What happens if, let's say, I do that and I upload that to YouTube? Could I get in trouble? I Probably not, right? Well, you could. And people have gotten in trouble. You know, I don't know how much the FAA scours YouTube for footage like that, but... Uh, recently, I think there was a guy in Philadelphia. The shots he got were pretty amazing, but totally against the law. And he posted it on YouTube, and uh, the FAA found out about it, and they pulled that as evidence. And and they, I don't know where where his case sits now, but they they find him a chunk of money. Wow, so much! And I hope I don't think he made enough money in YouTube ads to make up for it. I'm fine. sure he did not. And <laughs> that brings up a. 
uh, you know, this, what's it called? FPV or field, you know, point of view. Yeah. FPV. Can you tell us about that in, in innovation and what that means to drones? Yeah. So FPV is basically, it's pretty cool. Hold on. Uh, just define FPV. First person. That's right. First person. Yeah. So basically you put on goggles and now you are looking through the camera that's on the drone. It's basically like you're the pilot in the drone, but obviously you're on the ground with the controls. Right. So then wouldn't this violate, or not violate, but now make that FAA regulation that it has to be in your line of sight now no longer necessary? Because now you could take that drone out for kilometers away and you can't see it with your naked eye. But since you are the pilot, since you're seeing what it's seeing, it should be legit, right? That's a good question. And I don't know the answer to that question because uh, I've experimented with FPV years ago, but I don't know what the current regulations are. And I don't know, it may be that if you have a spotter that's next to you that maintains visual line of sight, uh, that may be okay, but I don't know the answer to that question. Are you very bullish on this technology? I'm glad you asked that. There's a video that came out recently, and if you go to YouTube and you look up uh, a video called Right Up Our Alley, it's only like a minute and a half. And it is the coolest. Mm-hmm. I'll put a link to it in the, yeah. in the show notes, Right Up Our Alley. I'll put a link. It is wicked cool. This guy, I think it was it was a promotion for a bowling alley, I think in Minnesota. And so this, clearly he's an FPV expert. You see this, the shot starts from outside the bowling alley and he comes into the bowling alley and past people and down the lanes and he swings around and he comes back and he circles around again. Uh, And it's absolutely incredible. And then he ends up, I think the shot finishes, he goes down the lane and into the pins and crashes into the pins. And it's just, you can't, you cannot get that shot any other way. It's unbelievable. And so seeing that makes me want to maybe start getting into FPV and and building up those skills. I think it's something that's going to sort of be a hot ticket because anytime you have a new way of being able to capture footage that you haven't seen before, Uh, everybody gets very excited about it. And that was the case just with drones. It also happened with GoPro, by the way. Yeah, yeah, GoPro. GoPro was was a revolutionary thing when all of a sudden people could put on their helmet and they're skiing or mountain biking down some hill. And to get it in high resolution and a fish-eyed lens, I mean, that was all pretty innovative at the time. Yeah, it was. I mean, really, when you're watching a movie or you're watching a TV show, you... You don't want to be able to say like, oh, that's a drone shot or, oh, that's a Steadicam shot. Why? What's the problem? The thing is, when you're watching a movie or you're watching a TV show, person on the other side, the director, the writer, they're trying to tell you a story. You use this new technology, FPV, drones, stuff like that. The key is really to use it in a way that that works with the story. And you're trying to wow people. No, wow is the right word. But you're trying to engage people in the story, not, hey, look at this cool shot. Got it. Because you think that the cool shot might be distracting from the story, for example. It's like, how the hell did they film that? And all of a sudden people start wondering how they fell. And, and they're not thinking about Romeo falling in love with Juliet. Exactly. If somebody's listening to this or watching this and saying, okay, I'm not into professional videography, but I do film videos as an amateur. What are like two or three tips that you could give them? Like if you could only do a couple of things right with your smartphone, because everybody now has a smartphone that with video capabilities and they can shoot in 4K. 
what would you tell them to do to make better, more watchable video? Stop shooting vertical <laughs> or go to TikTok. <laughs> so or, or or snapchat right snapchat's also i think vertical i guess i don't i've i know what snapchat is I, I haven't looked at it okay and i think instagram stories that's the challenge nowadays i think for a lot of video you know for filmmakers because a lot of people are consuming video nowadays in a vertical medium i agree with you i hate videos that are vertical and in fact whenever you watch let's say uh, a news program like here's a shooting of you know downtown uh, and and whatever the the eyewitness account of a shooting or some sort of crazy event or a tornado it's almost always shot vertically and so the news which is of course a horizontal 16 by 9 aspect ratio which uh, they have to kind of like do some crazy stuff with the video and show some sort of uh, funny stuff on the on the left and the right of the video to kind of not make it just black space. You know what I'm talking about. And it's just so annoying. So you're basically saying stop shooting vertical unless you really are convinced that you're only going to send this to a vertical only consumer. I mean, it makes sense that people shoot vertical just, you know, day-to-day videos because you hold your phone in a vertical format And if you just want to catch your friend, like doing something funny, or, I mean, you mentioned mass shooting, you know, if I want to capture the action, it's not like I'm going to pull out my phone in a panic and then be like, oh, I should shoot this landscape. So it makes sense that people shoot vertically, but like shooting across 16 by nine landscape, like how do we, how do we view the world? Not portrait. We view it in a landscape format. We view it across. Ah, that's interesting. You're right. Yeah, I never really thought about that. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's just sort of unnatural to shoot vertically. My sister, who should know better, recently sent me a video. She's like, hey, look at me. I'm at the beach and shot this video vertically. I mean, the beach, like a landscape, a beach landscape, right. the horizon. <laughs> right. I'm just like, what are, right. what are you doing? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> But Dan, please make me rest well and know that if you're ever in a mass shooting, you will shoot horizontally. You're not going to fall for the vertical stuff, right? Your instincts will take over. You'll do the right thing and film horizontally during a mass shooting, right? I would like to think that that the cinematographer inside, <laughs> so that the audience, <laughs> yes. so I can, I can show the mass shooting in a way that speaks to the audience. <laughs> or maybe I'll tell the shooter just stand by let me grab my drone real quick so I can get a cool overhead view exactly right this episode is sponsored by Rerouted which is creating a trusted online marketplace to revolutionize the used outdoor gear industry this allows you to create your own adventure you know buying outdoor gear is super expensive and Rerouted is allowing you to do it in a sustainable and inexpensive way For those who are buying gears, it's great because you're doing something that is environmentally responsible. You're recycling, reusing material and gear. You're also able to get it at an affordable price. So that's the win for those who are buyers. What about for the sellers? Well, you can donate to charity and you can have 50% of the sale price go to your favorite charity. And also it's a great way just to get rid of stuff that's been accumulating in your closet and not put it into a landfill. It's a great alternative. So how do you get involved? Whether you're a buyer or a seller, you go to rerouted.co. Again, that's rerouted.co. Although I rarely say it explicitly, the frequent message of the WanderLearn podcast is to disrupt your life. 
Usually, I encourage you to shake it up with travel, especially to places outside your comfort zone. However, there's another way to give yourself a boost. Join the Restoration Depot. TheRestorationDepot.com is a convenient and affordable online meeting place where you can rejuvenate your health and wellness online. Log in to your favorite classes like yoga, tai chi, essential oils, music, and many more. Check out all the options at therestorationdepot.com and try your first class for only $5 by selecting the first class special at checkout. Also, when you visit the Restoration Depot for the first time, take advantage of the pop-up where you can enter a drawing to win a wild orange essential oil. The focus of May 2021, week three, is essential oil wellness, functional medicine education, EFT tapping for stress and anxiety. Head to therestorationdepot.com. There's a reason why $50,000 4K digital cinema cameras cost that much compared to you know, a GoPro shooting 4K. Not all 4K is equal. Are you getting better color depth, better um, resolution of some sort? Uh, wh- what are some of the benefits that you're getting from that $100,000 4K camera versus your $300 smartphone 4K? So let's just say you have a, you have a GoPro that shoots 4K and then you have some high-end you know, $50,000 digital cinema camera that shoots 4K. They both shoot 4K. However, the cheaper GoPro 4K uh, is going to compress the hell out of it. The, uh, the dynamic range from light from dark to light will not be as great. The color behind it um, will the not color be as, science. Mm-hmm. The color depth uh, mm-hmm. will not be as deep. Like I said, all, all 4K is not equal just because it says 4K. My guess, therefore, also because it has more dynamic range, because it has better color stuff, that allows you to have far more flexibility in post-production. Right. Um, what about image stabilization? So this is the bane of all run-and-gun photographers. And I know you're a huge gimbal fan. You've twisted my arm. You've practically broken my arm telling me to get a gimbal have you gotten one yet i have my other arm i don't want to tell you the answer i already broke one arm <laughs> the answer is no <laughs> but, um, so i'm just curious like do you ever foresee it possible that in camera in camera stabilization you know the little shaky shaky stuff that they have is ever going to get close and to be good enough that you can leave your gimbal at home yes right here my iphone 12 <laughs> I had this app called One Second Every Day. I shoot video of my little toddler every single day, and this app lets me create like a one-second snippet every day, and then so I'll have one second of every day of my life. I'm chasing her all the time. She's like riding her little scooter. She's running around, and I chase her around with the phone, and it is remarkable for all the running around that I do how stable it is. Recently, I did just borrow a gimbal from a friend of mine for the phone. Sure, I mean, it's, it's smoother, but, you know, then you got to pull right. the gimbal out. You got to put the phone on there. You got to turn it on. So if, you know, I mean, it would be great if I was if I was doing sort of a more formal shoot and I really wanted stuff to be silky smooth. I am really impressed by 
by how smooth. I don't know what Apple does, you know, with their software, but that's just on a phone. Yeah, so that makes me wonder, like, if you have like a like I have a Sony A seven S three or future models, the A seven S four. Will they get to the point where you might be able to leave? I mean, if you can do it on a phone, why can't you do it on a DSLR or some you know mirrorless camera? Yeah, I think the Panasonic GH five, and I haven't used it, but I think the literature says that it has like this five point stabilization or five axis, which doesn't make any sense because there's only three axes. So I haven't tested it, but it's definitely a thing. It's definitely technology that's developing. Gimbals are great, and you can do really cool moves with them uh, right. that you can't do just holding a phone or a camera. Sure. So I, I, I right. think there's they do hold a lot of value. But if you're just walking down the street or driving your car or something like that, it's pretty good, as is. When I go to the Middle East... I'm trying to minimize the amount of crap and gear I want to take. And I know you're kind of slapping me and telling me, bring a drone. And and you're also breaking my arm, telling me to bring a gimbal. And I'm just thinking that's two more things to charge, you know, stuff to bring and just more things that can get stolen, break, get, I have to worry about dust and all that stuff. So I'm just trying to minimize, you know, one of the things I love in my, my dream and I, and there are travelers who do this. They just go with a teeny tiny little backpack with just like, that's it. I mean, and it's like weighs about two kilograms and that's it. And they just go. And that's kind of that freedom of super ultra light. There's some ben- huge benefits of doing that as opposed to lugging all this electronics with you. I mean, I agree with you that there's benefit to bringing less crap, but uh, I mean, the stuff that you're trying to shoot, like you're you're trying to produce videos that are that are engaging and at a higher level than all these idiots running around shooting vertical videos for TikTok. Sorry. Um, but I would say, well, first of all, I would say if you're going to bring, if you had to choose between a drone or a gimbal, you're not going to get a drone shot any other way. So, and to be able to get a perspective on, you know, wherever it is that you are shooting, I mean, it's 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 phenomenal. But um, have you filmed internationally? Because that's my, I know you have all these FAA rules, but I'm, and I think you, or, or maybe I found it, there was a website that shows kind of like international rules, like which countries prohibit drones and all this stuff. How much experience do you have shooting internationally and what kind of tips would you have? For example, if I were in Africa, I don't give a shit if the Congo tells me you can't film it. They always break the rules there and I would probably just do it because they break rules. Or if you're in the Sahara Desert, there's nobody there to see you film. So what the hell? If you're in Niger, you can just film in the Sahara Desert. Nobody's around anyway. When do you actually follow these international rules? Obviously, you're going to do it in Paris and other big city. But how do you approach international drone shooting? I've only shot internationally once. And that was in Uganda for National Geographic. Um, But in that case... I had a producer and she took care of everything. Right. So So she got all the permits and all that stuff. And and then she says, go fly your heart to your heart's content. You've got approval. So of course you don't care. And so that's great for you. As me, I'm usually a run and gun kind of guy. I don't have a huge crew behind me, any crew. It's always worth checking the regulations. And like you said, you can, you can find by country online what those regulations are. Now, let's say you go to a country... And they say, no drone use in the entire country, but you're out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, if you're in a tiny village, um, you know, especially if you like come into that village, maybe you get to know the people. Right. Um, Obviously situation dependent, but I think it's, I think what's really important if there are other people around is to say like, hey, I have this drone. Do you mind if I, you know, 
put it up in yeah. there real quick. Um, yeah, yeah. That's actually a good advice because like with the um, village chief, like many times in Africa, I met the village chief. And if I could just befriend him, then I could do almost anything I wanted. I, I would, what I would go, I'd be driving and it'd be sunset. And I'd just go up to the village chief and say, hi, do you mind if I camp somewhere in your village? And he would say, absolutely. Why don't you just camp right in front of my house? And then, of course, nobody would bother me because I got the approval of the chief. And so the same thing would happen like if I just got his approval. Hey, do you mind if I film a vertical shot of your house and I'll even show you the footage afterwards so you guys can enjoy it? And then, yeah, I think that's a great advice. Yeah. And especially because, I mean, most people find drones pretty fascinating and and, yes. and they're intrigued. They're like, wow, cool. And I get questions all the time like, oh, you know, what are you doing? How much does it cost? Can I see what you're doing? Uh, but right. you'll get people that freak out as well. Yes, absolutely. So it's kind of like drones are what photography was in the last century. Like when you go to, let's say, African villages in 1950 and take a photo of them, they'd never seen a camera before in their oh, life. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. You know, they'll be like, what the fuck are you doing? You know, hey, or, you know, this a, a notion that I don't really believe anybody really believes, which is, um, you know, you're stealing my soul or you're taking yeah. a bit of my spirit with you, which I don't really think there's that many societies that actually believe that. But even in the 21st century, when I was in Africa, I would take photos of people and people had very strong reactions. Mm. If I didn't ask their permission, sometimes they got really like upset that why are you taking my photo versus in the United States? If you take random photos, you go walk around some city or, or town, people just don't really care drones still have that kind of wow factor and like intrusion factor or whatever you want to call it that yeah. cameras used to have a uh, hundred years ago yeah now the last thing i want to talk to you about is your podcast list like is that you told me you you subscribe to fewer than seven podcasts <laughs> i just don't have time to listen to it all it shows that you're hyper selective about your podcast. I'm I'm a complete podcast slut. I've got like I don't know, probably fifty to hundred podcasts on my list. But how do you find the time to listen to them? I oh, and this is something I take exception with, which I think you, I emailed you about. And it's a personal thing. Yes, um, you said you listen to podcasts at two x speed, close to two x speed, usually one point seven. But anyway, yes, same point. One point seven. Yeah. And to me, like I tried that, and I I I sort of became disengaged interesting okay yeah because for me like a lot of like listening to the podcast is i mean you know it's it's you're passively i don't know communicate well they're communicating to you and so i feel like you know i'm 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 listening to what they have to tell me in it and at 1.5 or 1.7 or 2x speed then i feel like i'm just kind of like you know it's like hitting fast forward on on your vcr Okay, so by the way, about 30% of the population agrees with me. I've read studies that show that 30% of the podcast population speeds up the speed of the podcast and 70% listen to it at normal speed. By the way, when I watch YouTube videos, most YouTube videos, I also speed up anywhere between 1.5 to 2x depending on the content. And so if it's a lot of cuts and, and well-produced, then of course I may only speed it up 1.25. And the same thing goes with podcasts. Like for example, Gary Arndt's podcast, I listen to him at only 1.2. Basically when people are reading, they read faster than they talk. And so as a result, I have to slow down. It's like if it's a news show and they're just reading a script, 
then I slow down the, the speed. But I guess the idea for me, it engages me faster. If all of a sudden somebody's talking really fast, like Tony Robbins is talking really fast like this, then all of a sudden I got to listen more carefully. And so I got to engage more. But if they're talking kind of slow, then I can do be doing my dishes and, and, and uh, still I'm almost, I, I can be doing two things at the same time if they're talking too slowly. So, but that's me. So apparently you like to just listen, listen to it at real speed, but that's my excuse. When you speed it up, that you retain that information or does it just become like turning on the radio? Good question. And I mean, 10 minutes later, you don't even remember like what you listened to. Good but question. It was relaxing and right. past the time. When you read a book, for example, somebody can ask you, okay, Dan, how much of the book did you actually re- remember? And no matter how slowly or how quickly you read it, you're probably not going to get more than 50% comprehension rate. Most people don't. Um, if you're really, really good, you can get up to 70% comprehension. So that means they take you an extensive exam, you get 70% right on the questions of, on, on, of the exam. But many people only get 10, 20%. And certainly that percentage, whatever it may be, fades over time, right? And so my philosophy is just pack your brain with information and data and just assume that maybe you're only going to retain 10%. But if you stuff it with a lot of stuff, eventually you're, you're going to, you'll remember some tidbits here and there. So that's, it, it's kind of like drowning with information, which is probably terrible in the information age. And that's what's screwing up this entire world and why we're all going to go to hell. People like me exist. Um, and people like you will save the world because you're actually mon- monotasking. What is that? Not multitasking, monotasking. Um, oh, I, I multitask like a... You're going to hell with me then. <laughs> <laughs> but my question is this. So you're talking about like speeding up these podcasts to pack in more information, hoping that you retain 10 to 20%. Right. Is it possible if you were more selective and you listen to it at regular speed that you would retain more information. I think it's certainly possible. So less possible. stuff going in there. Yeah, yeah, sure. You're, it's it's quite possible. I haven't done a, a study for it. So you're right. Oh, you wanted to know the podcast I listen to. Yeah. Well, the one I, I make sure that I never, ever miss is WanderLearn. <laughs> um, what an asshole that guy is. <laughs> I just listened to what stupid thing will he say next? <laughs> yes, that's why I listen to it. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, how's he going to stick his foot in his mouth this time? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and why does he curse so damn much? Uh, okay, I listen to Planet Money. Uh-huh. NPR Planet Money. Yes. Which I think is fascinating. Reply All, Criminal, This American Life. How can you not listen to This American Life? That's just classic. Mm. Uh, What's Criminal? Is that about, is that like... Phoebe Judge, Criminal. And it's it's just different criminal stories. Okay, okay, okay. So it's nonfiction. Yeah. Nonfiction. Got it. Okay. Very well done. Okay. Very well done. Wait, wait, don't tell me. Okay. Okay. So a lot of NPR stuff. A lot of NPR stuff. They're the masters. I mean, they, they've been doing this for years and and their production values are superb. Well, that's just it. I mean, the content is compelling, but also the way they, the way they produce it, the way they present it is just top notch. All right. We will end this segment with the question of the week. Dan, you get the honor for the question of the week. NFTs. Oh, God. <laughs> WTF. All right. So here's the thing. NFTs. Non-fungible tokens. And I'm trying not to be like like such an old crusty guy and being like, NFTs, ah, the kids and <laughs> exactly, all that. Right. Jack Dorsey's first tweet being sold for $2.5 million. What? 
And, and I'm reading about it and I'm thinking like, this is absolutely absurd. This makes no sense. There was just, there was an article I just read about a guy who sold an audiophile of his farts for $85, <laughs> which is kind of awesome actually. <laughs> but so I'm trying to wrap my head around it and right. uh, go. All right. So for those who don't know, non-fungible tokens, although they've been hitting the news quite recently, quite a bit, are this digitally scarce tokens. So most people can create anything that's digital and then make it through the blockchain blockchain technology, make sure that there's a limited number of copies of it. It could be just one copy, 100 copies. And also the other advantage for artists is that they can then put in the code that they get royalties whenever the, the item gets resold. So just imagine if you're Picasso... You make a wonderful painting, you sell it for a million dollars, and that's it. That's what Picasso get. He just got a million dollars. That's period. And then that guy who sold it then sells it for $2 million. Picasso gets none of that $2 million. With non-fungible tokens, the artist can then get a royalty off that $2 million sale. And then when that same painting sells for $20 million 20 years later... Again, Picasso will get a royalty off that $20 million. So in that sense, and then you can use this for music. So let's say you are a band and you want to make a live music that you make only 100 copies available. You sell it. And then if that gets resold in the future, you could get a royalty from that. So in that sense, I think an NFT is great benefit for artists everywhere who are usually poor and need money. And so this is another mechanism. And digital has destroyed the artist, writers and journalists, because you can just copy and paste and because now everything in news is free and everything is free. Ebooks are practically free, pirated copies, let alone the music industry has been decimated. Videos, as you know, it's now you can make a movie and then all of a sudden everybody pirates the movie and you can find it. So now NFTs has allowed a mechanism to protect and allows artists to make money through the scarcity of their work, their digital work. So that is, I would say, the good news about NFTs and why you should, as an artist yourself, as a filmmaker yourself, should be applauding the existence of NFTs and, and scarce digital art. The downside, some people have pointed out that they're much more intensive energy-wise than typical blockchain technology stuff. And so they consume more energy for the same amount of, because they have more data and more information that has to go about mining yeah more mining it's not so much mining but it's just processing each nft is quite expensive and time consuming and energy intensive compared to let's say if i send you some bitcoin or send you some other token and that's it that's the transaction nfts require more i don't know the details i just know it's bad but on the other hand nfts represent less than half a percent or less than 0.1 percent of all the blockchain transactions out there so Yes, they, it's kind of like there's probably a, a certain type of cow that farts and creates a lot of emissions and greenhouse gases, but maybe if they only represent less than 1% of the cows out there, we can make a big deal about this cow being really terrible, but as far as all the greenhouse gases, it's a small dunk in the pan. So that's the same thing with NFTs. So in general, I agree with you that I'm, I'm left scratching my head with regards to a lot of NFTs, but that's probably because you and I are not collectors and so you did you ever collect baseball cards and things like that yeah i collected baseball cards and i collected pez i had a pretty good pez collection oh wow okay good therefore you might understand 
to some extent that people want to collect digital stuff that is scarce. In games, for example, I don't play games, but I know that things like Second Life and certain digital worlds, you can buy certain magical items or a sword that is digitally scarce. And your character has some sort of cool capacity because he's got he's the only one of 10 guys who's got this in the whole universe that has this sword. See, I, I get that because you're, if you're engaged in a game and you're interacting with a game and you buy this magical sword or whatever, I get that. But a fart? I don't, I don't get... <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. Somebody else's fart um, <laughs> recording <laughs> for 88 bucks? But I don't... I don't get buying a, a digital version that only lives on the computer of somebody's artwork. I get buying the artwork. I don't get buying the digital version. But if it, the only version is digital, then... Yeah, then I don't care. Okay, but some people do. I mean... But why would I care? It's possible in the future people will just say, hey, you see that digital representation of this artist? It's the only copy that exists in the world, and I own it. Some people get jollies off that. It must be a collector thing. Because, okay, so that digital picture that you just made an example of, I'll just take a picture of it, or I'll do a screen capture. Right. And now I have a representation. I can go there and take a picture of the Mona Lisa. I realize it's a physical representation. It's true, but, I mean, there are... It's not worth okay, anything. Okay, but, but there's even posters of the Mona Lisa and, and really nice reproductions. There's people who, who copy art, right? Who actually sure. copy it with actual paint and oil on canvas. And they are really, really like, unless you're an expert, you can't tell the difference. I don't know. I'm not a materialist. So I don't really collect shit. I can kind of understand this scarcity adds often value. And I agree with you that this is an exploratory phase for us. For some strange reason, recording of a fart is getting 80 bucks. We don't know why. Tweets are really strange. Buying a tweet because the tweet is available for all to see. You and I can see it and enjoy it. It is certainly a head scratcher. I agree with you. It's a head scratcher. No question. But it's not going away. Well, I was going to say that was that was leading to my sort of wrap up question regarding this. NFTs, fad? It's here to stay. Like I sort of like feel like, like 3D, like, you know, maybe it'll come back, but it was a fad. So there was CryptoKitties. Did you hear about that? I don't know anything. I've heard about it, but I, I don't know anything about it. The Ethereum blockchain had something called CryptoKitties. And CryptoKitties were digital representations, and they would make, let's say, a 1,000 CryptoKitties, and you could buy one for, I don't know, 10 cents or whatever. There were certain CryptoKitties that were so rare, one of a kind, that they were getting, they were selling for, I think, six figures, right? roughly around $100,000. Incredible. Just digital, period. And so... That's right. what I don't get. Anyway, so people thought it was a fad, especially once all of a sudden it kind of died down. But that was a few years ago. That was a few years ago. Now all of a sudden, it's back. And it's back in a much deeper and harder way. And I think that's an indication that it's not like 3D and all this other stuff. I think it's going to be here to stay. It uh, will evolve for sure. And certain... And th That is what they said about 3D. <sighs> Like 20 years ago, like 3D was, was a thing. Then it went away. Then it came back like, what, 10 years ago, five years ago. Then it went away. So we'll see. I mean, I think in certain circumstances, NFTs make sense. And I've heard something about like uh, certain artists, if you buy their NFT tokens and you own them, then that grants you access to when they release new tracks or something. I get that. But this, whatever, CryptoKitty or whatever you said, like, where's the value? I just don't see it. So 
remains to be seen. Consequently, in just trying to understand this, I opened up an OpenSea account and I created an NFT of just a random picture I had. I was going to sell it for 50 cents until I found out that the gas fee was $89. That's right. Just to post it. Now, that's that's what I was telling you earlier when I said NFTs are extremely expensive and consume a ton of energy on the blockchain because of all this machinations that are going on in the background. And that is something that they're going to have to figure out. And so maybe, maybe there'll be a future blockchain, maybe let's say like Cardano or some of the other blockchains that are not Ethereum, not Bitcoin, but another blockchain that will be optimized for NFTs. And so maybe that blockchain will become the de facto standard for where NFTs can be sold and not have these ridiculous gas fees that you talked about. Right. Although, do the gas current gas fees provide some barrier to entry so that cheapos like me are like, screw it, it's not worth my time. But real artists, you know, it might be worth it to them. I just think that you don't want it to be so prohibitively high, like $80 is just to me prohibitively high because then that discourages the teenager who's a budding artist who wants to get his work shown or anybody or somebody who's, let's say, in Africa who just, you know, is a fantastic artist, but $80 means a lot more to him than an artist in America. So you want to have the low barriers to entry. That's when innovation really kicks in when people have low barriers to entry. But you want to have something that prohibits spamming and that doesn't cost a lot to prohibit spamming. And it could just be a $5 fee or $2 fee, something like that. It's just enough so that somebody can't spam the entire network with bullshit art. Dan, absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Where can people uh, hire you to film with your drone or your cameras? Right. Well, skybanditpictures.com represents my uh, drone work and dancopeland.com is uh, my camera work. D-A-N-C-O-P-L-A-N.com. And that concludes this episode of the Wander Learn podcast, where we explore travel, technology, and transformation. If you'd like to see the show notes with links to what we talked about, or if you'd like to comment on the show, or if you'd like to ask me a question, then go to wanderlearn.com and click on this episode. If you'd like to connect with me, just remember FTAPON. That's my first initial and my last name. FTAPON is the username I use on all social media. You can also get to my website by going to ftapon.com. And here's one last reason to remember ftapon. If you like what I do and would like to get rewarded for supporting my projects, then go to patreon.com slash ftapon. That's where you can pick up some remarkable rewards for as little as $2 a month. And now for five quick favors. Number one, subscribe to the WanderLearn podcast. Two, download it. Three, share it. Four, review it somewhere. And five, sign up for my newsletter at wanderlearn.com. Our theme music was composed by Eric Stratman. This is Francis Tapon encouraging you to wander and learn.